Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Artist Space Books and Talks. That's quite an introduction. Um, it's really amazing to see so many people here tonight. Thank you all for squeezing in. Um, we've done our best to fit as many seats in as possible, um, as we knew this was going to be a very popular uh, an event. Um, so tonight's event has been organized in parallel with Cameron Rowland's ex solo exhibition that opened at our Green Street space on Saturday night. Uh, when Cameron began working on this exhibition nearly 18 months ago, Cheryl Harris's 1993 essay, Whiteness as Property, was one of the first texts that we discussed. Cheryl's research and scholarship and her significant contribution to the field of critical race theory allows for a deep understanding of how US constitutional law acts to reproduce forms of inequality and to maintain racially contingent forms of property and property rights. We're really hugely pleased that Cheryl agreed to enter into a dialogue with Cameron early last year 
and to present a talk this evening that takes forward certain concerns they have discussed. Cheryl's talk is titled The Afterlife of Slavery, Markets, Property and Race, and in her words will consider conditions under which, despite efforts to obscure slavery and indigenous dispossession in the genealogy and narrative of American nationhood, these realities remain deeply embedded in the relationship between race and markets, where in fact race and economic domination are fused. So Cheryl I. Harris is the Rosalind and Arthur Gilbert Foundation Chair in Civil Rights and Civil, Liberty, Civil Liberties and Director of the Center for Critical Race Studies at UCLA School of Law. A graduate of, of Wellesley College and Northwestern School of Law, Professor Harris began her teaching career in 1990 at Chicago Kent College of Law. After working, after working for one of Chicago's leading criminal defense firms and later serving as a senior legal advisor in the city attorney's office as part of the reform administration of Mayor Harold Washington. Her focus on interconnections between racial theory, civil rights practice, and politics has led to groundbreaking and influential scholarship on subjects such as Hurricane Katrina, college admissions policies, and anti-discrimination law. She was a key organizer of several major conferences that helped establish a dialogue between US legal scholars and South African lawyers during the development of South Africa's first democratic constitution. And in 2005, she was awarded the ACLU Foundation of Southern California's Distinguished Professor Award for Civil Rights Education. So I'm gonna hand over shortly to Cheryl, um, but I briefly wanted to first mention uh, that there will be an opportunity after Cheryl's talk for questions so please, please feel free to offer responses. Uh, I think we really, really encourage that. And lastly, I wanna also wanted to extend a, a sizable thank you to all those who have supported Cameron's exhibition and our programs more broadly, including the Cameron Rowland Exhibition Supporters Circle, Essex Street, and the Friends of Arthur Space. So thank you very much. I'll hand over to Cheryl. Thank you all. Um, thank you very much to Cameron and to Richard. This is a very uh, wonderful and intimidating crowd. Uh, I did not anticipate it, and I'm delighted to see you all, and I hope that we will have an opportunity to talk. Um, one way of understanding what I'm about to do here is that when Cameron began to engage me, he wrote me wonderfully long and thoughtful emails, and I didn't exactly respond to them in the same spirit that they were sent. I sort of sent back stuff about the logistics, you know, when and where. But the ideas have continued to percolate. And what I've told Cameron is that one way of thinking about what I'm going to say this evening is that it's my letter back to him. So um, I want to uh, particularly thank him for opening up a line of thinking that I've been gestating on, I think, for some time. And part of it is that I understand Cameron's work as within a black radical tradition that challenges erasure, and particularly the erasure of origins and consequences. So I am very unschooled in the literature and practices of contemporary art, but Cameron is mining ground with which I claim familiarity and into which I feel invited. So it's in that spirit that I'm offering this comments. So Cameron tells me that he is concerned with how, quote, how structural economic, legal, and political conditions manifest and determine reality. If these realities may be understood through their materiality, then sculpture may be an appropriate form towards an analysis and criticism of such realities. 
understand materials to include laws and policies as well as physical matter, and the dynamics of privatization, subsistence, and criminalization are central. So Cameron's insistence is that art and its production not be exempt from the critique of racial domination and capital exploitation. Uri McMillan, my colleague um, in African American Studies at UCLA, and there's one thing that I left out of the introduction, is I'm um, currently the chair of the Department of African American Studies at UCLA. And Uri is a brilliant cultural critic and historian of black cultural production, um, author of the recently published monograph, Embody Avatars, that's my little ad for Uri. Um, he suggests that one way of thinking about this work is as, quote, experimenting with the ways that an object might address not only its beholder, but the financial networks it circulates within. So I would add that uh, Cameron is also excavating the networks within which these objects are produced, and he does so by presenting us with objects that look like many others. Um, in fact, uh, they're fungible, they seem to be, but they embody a particular racial history and imprint. And so in their fungibility, we find out that we cannot distinguish the good from the bad object any more than we can distinguish the good from the bad Negro or the good from the bad Muslim. Cameron describes an afterlife of slavery, first through the convict leasing system, and then the transference of those bodies to public projects through the chain gang. His focus is on the central role of law in criminalizing black subjectivity, and it illuminates both the violence used to extract labor and value from black people and the ways in which that was legitimized. He points out that the restriction of prison labor to state use, that is the transfer from the convict leasing system to the chain gang, quote, does not result in publicly traded profit, but rather in savings. Um, and this is actually, he identifies as a function of the neoliberal state, that is cost savings, restrictions, cutbacks, layoffs, retrenchment, all of that is justified as progress. And so thus, under neoliberalism, quote, the savings provided by the state use of inmate labor describes a discrete dependence between the state's correctional and economic systems. In mapping out the intricate web through which the market and the state are entwined, the dominant representation of the market, particularly in law, is as separate from and functioning properly only in the absence of state control. But what we can quickly see is that this is mythological. Instead, the market is rather constructed through and as a racialized apparatus. Technologies of race making occur in zones both close by and far away, as well as in the virtual space where we are famously told that the mar market functions without borders. But it's in that borderless space that the market itself is constructed as a space in which white normativity is constantly made and protected. And the modern racial state constructs liberal racial reform within and through market rhetoric. Um, I go on here to talk about a famous case, uh, which I'm going to leave out now since it's not a law school class. You know. um, but there's a case called Lochner versus New York, um, which is uh, upheld as the sort of um, moment when the Supreme Court really ratified a particular view of the market and argued that a law that was designed, uh, it was basically a, a wage and hours law that was designed to protect bakers uh, from being economically exploited, uh, the Supreme Court struck it down and said that it, the problem with it was is that it was an intrusion into the market. It was, it was a way in which it was distorting the natural bargaining relationship between employer and employee. Um, that, was part, that became part of a, uh, of a series of, a later series of cases in which the court struck down different forms of labor regulation along the same idea, 
um, because of the presumption that the state's efforts to regulate any relationship as employer and employee was violating a constitutional principle called freedom of contract. Um, it, it was interfering with the private sphere. Uh, the dissent in Lochner basically called this out as, fi as fictional and said that what the court was really doing was dressing up an economic theory as a constitutional principle. Uh, but yet, even af after the Depression sort of disrupted this notion of the pure market as being the savior for economic development, uh, even, as we have a, even as there was a subsequent case which overturns Lochner, what I argue here is that the underlying presumption of Lochner still re remains. That is, despite the sort of formal law, we still have an underlying presumption of the market as a liberated space in which people can negotiate freely, but it stands in stark contrast to the actual functioning of the markets as locations through which racial hierarchies are constituted, revised, and remade. Apart from the formal dimensions of the carceral state, the most visible institutional structure, there is a material presence, quotidian in nature, that Cameron has invited us to see so that we might better unmask and challenge the everyday practices through which this regime is instantiated. The brilliant and subversive provocation that he gives us takes us into the racial genealogy of objects, the seemingly fungible yet highly specific terms of their production use and circulation. In laying bare the origins of these objects, at certain points their status is as salvage, as throwaway, their use value having been seemingly exhausted, but in an aftermarket they become monetized once again. Neoliberalism celebrates and relies upon this cycle, and it has become a principle in which profit is generated and property is accumulated. This process by which the throwaway is monetized, I want to argue is also a racially specific pattern that he traces in history. Despite efforts to obscure the central role of slavery and indigenous dispossession in narratives of nationhood, these realities are deeply imprinted in the relationship between race and markets and property. Through slavery and native dispossession, race and economic domination are fused. Earlier in whiteness as property, I considered how this relationship legitimated whiteness as a form of property under law, a property that maintains its value even as over time certain forms of racial domination change or recede. Extending these thoughts, I would argue that racial hierarchy is continually replenished through the market, while the market encodes property in accord with racial uh, premises. The imprint of race is erased, albeit incompletely, through the market and market rhetoric. So, quote unquote, the market functions not only as a location where exchange occurs, but where dispossession of land, property, and persons is legitimated. Financialization, securitization have been historically key to this process what Peggy Radin describes as thingification, and, and the appraisal through markets is critical to its operation today. My focus here is on the afterlife of slavery, but I should make clear that I see this as one part of a critical um, project of mapping out how dispossession is part of the apparatus of settler colonialism. Uh, and this involved the construction and deployment of different racial logics and technologies that enabled the taking of Native American land and the genocidal violence visited upon them. The market, depicted as neutral and driven only by rational and inexorable laws of supply and demand, is far from neutral, as embedded within it are racial norms, presumptions, ideologies, and structures. Racial regimes shape how people enter the market, whether they enter as subjects or whether they enter as objects. Slavery, of course, defined enslaved bodies, their labor, and their offspring as property, as assets which were valued, assessed, and appraised. 
This history is largely obscured even among those who acknowledge the uh, existence of the institution, in part, I think, because the trope of the plantation and the family have overdetermined the history and historiography of American slavery. This is the space in which I understand new studies of U.S. capitalist development have intervened, rejecting an understanding of slavery as a pre-capitalist kind of feudal enterprise. Uh, in opposition to this view is the work of historians like Walter Johnson, Robert Blackburn, who have documented the importance of slavery to the economic production of the nation and the accumulation of northern and British capital. Afro-Caribbean historians, of course, have long been on this case. I mean, it's for quite a while. Um, but even beyond the role of slavery in building European and the so-called New World economic power, slavery as a racial project was central to the development of capitalism. Indeed, my colleague at UCLA, uh, Peter Hudson, has some very exciting new work which centers on the race and economic history through understanding banking, not only as an economic institution, but he argues as a cultural one. If we resist the dominant trope of the plantation, he suggests, one way of under, as a way of understanding, say, for example, Caribbean political economy, one could advocate for a kind of critical history of banking as what he calls, quote, both subject and method of cultural studies and African diaspora history. In his forthcoming book, Banking on Empire, he actually relates a history of banking in the Caribbean, illustrating how the region served as a testing ground for new mechanisms of internationalization of capital, a critical geography through which the relationship between imperialism and U.S. financial institutions was formed. So in addition to the role of black labor in commodity production, uh, we cannot forget that enslaved bodies were themselves commodities under slavery. And of course, uh, there have been histories that have documented this too, most recently Edward Baptist, the half has never been told, talking about the domestic slave trade, uh, which indicates that after the ban in 1808, um, the market became central in the expansion and the growth of slavery with over a million um, enslaved Africans being sent from the upper south to the fields and industries of the lower north. This market filled the dominant white class demand for both labor and pleasure, and pleasure. The posting of enslaved Africans as collateral allowed for increased lending through mortgages, which themselves funded by the banks through the sale of bonds in the global market. These bonds were backed by human collateral. Black people themselves were securitized, and investors, even those in free territory and countries, profited. The increase in productivity and profit were the direct result of the violent system of exchange ratified and enacted by state power. So the imprint of this racial logic is what I'm trying to trace now. Uh, and it remains, I think, particularly salient because it defines sort of who is a proper economic subject and who is not. Um, and all of these questions still deeply implicate race. Um, you all may have noticed that there's been a recent tumble in the Chinese stock market. Sort of been on the table. Uh, this recent upheaval ha that has produced aftershocks here uh, has really had some interesting sort of reverberations, and so I've been not following a lot, but looking at some of the sort of dominant consensus commentary of the pundit class about uh, what this all means. And a lot of the analysis basically goes along the lines of saying the problem is, is that the Chinese, that the problem was is that the Chinese intervened in the market, that they were still unwilling to fully put their trust in the market. The fact that uh, China had built these so-called circuit breakers uh, to stop trading once the valuations fell below a certain level and that these had not, in fact, stopped the free fall, this was all taken as evidence of the folly of the enterprise of directly intervening in the market 
as well as the fact that the Chinese were really still, despite all of their uh, wealth and resources, still unpracticed at being pure capitalist. Right? Um, they needed additional tutelage, apparently, uh, and relying on and trusting, quote unquote, the market, which inexorably follows basic laws such as uh, supply and demand. The fact that after the worldwide economic collapse in 2008, anybody can be scolded for failing to trust the market is really uh, quite stunning. <laughs> but it says something about the durability of certain premises and their immunity to facts. Um, this rhetoric also has undertones of a kind of racialized presumption about master and pupil that's rendered even more ironic given the rickety state of the US economic situation. Um, Racial subjectivity, though, is what I'm arguing here is key to how the market functions. And it takes me back, of course, as always, to Du Bois, uh, his thesis regarding the formation and investments of the white working class in what he called the wages of whiteness. As Du Bois argued, whiteness conferred both material and psychologically advantage, and psychological advantages. At times, quote, they, that is the white working class, received higher pay for the same work or were given access to work denied to blacks. But as he put it in Black Reconstruction, quote, even when whites received a low wage, they were compensated in part by a sort of public and psychological wage. They were given public deference because they were white. They were admitted freely with all classes of white people to public functions and public parks. The police were drawn from their ranks and the courts, dependent on their votes, treated them with leniency. Their votes selected public officials and while this has had small effect on their economic situation, it had great effect on their personal treatment. So this foundational insight, which of course inspired the landmark text by David Rodiger, The Wages of Whiteness, uh, has also resonances with recent work in anthropology on capitalism. Um, Karen Ho, among others, have been working on this question and in an article called, um, or a piece called White Male Fraternity and the Making of Markets, she provides what I think is a very useful elaboration of how, in fact, psychological benefits can take on material form. Um, and so she draws on, she says she's examining the extent to which, in the US, most normative markets, from the job market, to the housing market, to capital markets, to financial markets, are fueled by and constructed through whiteness and white racial fraternity. She draws on, in turn, on the work of a colleague of mine named Sumi Cho, who did a really uh, powerful critique of some of the new work in economic sociology. And uh, some of this work you may be familiar with, uh, it's, uh, it's about the idea of weak ties, sort of supplanting the old sort of blood ties as a mechanism for transferring information, networks, hiring, and so forth. And the idea here is that we've sort of moved into an area where uh, the way in which people acquire information, knowledge, jobs, economic uh, uh, goods is through these weak ties. Uh, what's very interesting and what uh, Sumi points out is that the studies that have been done to sort of demonstrate the existence and I guess viability of these weak ties are all studies that uh, look at the ways in which these weak ties are, rely on trust, reliability, and credibility. But as she points out, all of the studies were basically 99% white and virtually all male. Um, and so the desired traits that bolster and make weak ties possible are actually racially encrypted. Um, these are characteristics that are in fact the characteristics of the white male fraternity. And as Ho argues, the market is not a neutral field from which certain people are merely excluded. It is rather constructed through normative assumptions and connections to white male subjectivity and the traits associated with the proper economic subject. 
As she points out, this makes it very difficult to talk about expanding and reforming markets, but it also explains for me why in part inclusion and incorporation into the market, as well as exclusion from the market, can function as a form of racial subordination. That is, both can function in this way. Um, so the presumption of racial neutrality of white racial networks is what we really have, and that's also part of the magic because race gets disappeared under this regime. Slavery, however, as we know well, did not end the structure of racial domination that it, was, that it produced and was produced by. Its afterlife has been prominently mapped through work on the carceral state. The market continued to serve as a mode of exchange for buying and selling black bodies after the end of slavery. And Cameron turns our attention to this. Um, this was not metaphoric. Um, Douglas Blackman's, of course, slavery by another name, most famously has talked about how in the age of neo-slavery, um, the convict leasing system operated to build and accumulate capital, bodies leased to private industry as a fully fungible labor force, the steel industry, coal industry, railroad, all of this built on this labor. And at some point, the fact that convict leasing undercut the value of free labor presented a contradiction that was resolved by restricting prison labor to the state use as an aspect of liberal reform. That's one way of thinking about the chain gang. It was, it was a kind of liberal reform of convict leasing. Um, tracing this to the present, uh, inmates uh, are, of course, consumers as well. They're consumers of goods and of services associated with their incarceration. Anybody who's ever tried to um, stay in contact with anybody who's incarcerated knows something about the phone fees that are associated with that. They're absolutely confiscatory. And um, they, that, that's part of what I, I guess I'm saying in terms of their, their um, incarceration does not keep them from having to be positioned as consumers. Um, so apart from sort of the development of prison industries, we have commodities that are produced by prison labor becoming available to private nonprofit organizations. And this is part of what Cameron's work is uh, pointing our way to. This economic circuitry demonstrates once again the intimate relationship among race markets and the carceral state. But elaborating from these insights, we might consider other dimensions and consequences of these relationships and map the terrain more broadly apart from the criminal sanction system. The criminalization of black people, particularly as Blackman describes, was tied to the creation of debt with widespread and often fraudulent claims by whites that blacks owed them a debt and the arrest of those unable to pay with the assessment of fees, et cetera. What is striking is that the role that debt continues to play in the operation of racial capitalist markets. At the same time that black people are excluded from markets, job, housing, capital, et cetera, reflecting their devaluation as economic subjects, so-called liberal reform continues to incorporate blackness into finance capital as sources, sources of, quote, high-risk debt. Black spaces, I argue, are forever unstable, subprime, and prone to being declared to be waste, making them always available for reappropriation through various technologies such as debt, regulation and deregulation, and development and redevelopment. It's not that uh, economic predations that I'm describing here are visited only on black people, but rather that its forms and logics and justifications are sit, sitting within a deep racial stew, um, and that, that that cannot be extracted. Um, it's probably also worth knowing, uh, noting that central to this story is, of course, the corporate structure, 
which became central to how capital is organized. So attractive features of corporations are that they limit liability, they facilitate exchange, uh, they allow for the raising of capital, and they also allow for multiple or complex organizational forms, as well as facilitating securitization and commodification. As an aside, I might note that while corporate personhood has come under some degree of scrutiny as a result of the Citizens United decision that allowed uh, or that struck down regulations on corporate contributions on the grounds that it was restricting corporate speech, um, what I think is less understood is that the corporation is not simply a 14th Amendment person to whom constitutional rights attach. It is, as a former student of mine, Amanda Werner brilliantly argued, when one looks at how corporate power is sort of organized and constituted, who controls them and how they operate, one can reasonably conclude that the corporation is a 14th Amendment white person. Um, so um, I also want to turn to um, what I think of as really being the meditation that um, Cameron's work invited me to, to engage, and that is about debt and water and water and debt. Um, so I'm particularly been stricken, as I think many of us have, by the deprivation to access to clean, safe water that is occurring in Flint, uh, and that has also a, a immediately in the last year also occurred in Detroit. I don't think these are accidents that this is happening in these places. Um, Flint is a nearly 60% black city. Detroit is 80% black. The poverty rate in Detroit, I think the last time I saw it was somewhere around 40%. I think it's similar, if not higher, in Flint. Um, and so we all know the story now. Um, the, uh, Flint was placed under an emergency management system, which took it, uh, disconnected itself basically from the Detroit water supply system, and in an effort to save money, uh, connected itself to the Flint River. The lead has now leached into the pipes and into the bodies of the families living there. Um, I just want to read you this news report. Flint, which is now under a transition advisory board as an interim step towards return to local control, was placed in receivership under an emergency manager appointed by the governor in 2011. The city which had previously purchased Lake Huron letter through the DW, or through Detroit Water and Sewage Department, began drawing its water from the Flint River in April 2014. The city stuck with the water despite months of complaints from residents about the poor taste and color, among other concerns. It reconnected in October 16. What's interesting is that the decision to switch the water source was approved by the city council and mayor. And reports indicate that after April 2013, after the city officials advised Detroit that they were going to switch, um, Detroit gave them one year notice that they were going to terminate the contract. Um, and this decision was taken before the new pipeline could be built between Flint and the new water source. Um, Detroit took the decision to terminate one month after it had been placed under an emergency management. Uh, and in the interim, of course, then we have the supply of the poisonous water to Flint. Um, I want to examine Flint and Detroit as acute examples of the ways in which property is accumulated as a racial project and the role of the market and the management and construction of debt in that enterprise. So um, we also have, in addition to sort of the demographics of Flint, a kind of similar history of both of these cities as central sites of industrial production and the intimate relationship, the marriage almost, if you will, between corporation and government. 
So Flint was called Vehicle City, and Detroit was called? Okay. Um, and both of these were identified as industrial powerhouses that were produced by and through a certain racial hierarchy. Uh, Jim Crow and it, all of its manifestations were viciously sort of enforced in both Detroit and Flint. Um, and in both sites, um, they persisted, this rigid sort of demarcation, uh, segregation. As the black population increased in both places, you had a redirection of assets and investment to the suburbs. And a highly organized labor force, much of it black, uh, found itself without work in the flight of capital in search of the un- or underregulated space. These histories, I think, uh, repudiate the distinctions that are typically drawn between de jure under law and de facto sort of naturally occurring by practice segregation. Uh, that's a form of sort of northern racial exceptionalism that, you know, uh, is sort of endemic. But if you look at the history of these cities, you can see that in both, in both instances, the notion that segregation, the ending of segregation by law somehow ended the problem is put to a lie. In its wake, what we have is um, deindustrialization, which is such a sanitary word. Um, but it, um, in a book um, by Stephen High and David Lewis called Corporate Wasteland, The Landscape and Memory of Deindustrialization, one of the things that is uh, very clear about both of these spaces is that they are often narrated as though this is a kind of natural byproduct of corporate capitalism. That is, there's a kind of natural life cycle of these places and somehow they're just kind of at the end of it. Um, the deindustrialization has shaped the image of them as corporate wastelands, reimagined, um, the essay says, as no man's land between fading smokestack industries and post-industrial production. What's What's, I think, problematic is that the physical ruins themselves become the focus, and there's been a rush to sort of depict them. I don't know if many of you have probably seen these photographs. They're hauntingly beautiful, but they're disembodied. They're often without context. There's no commentary or background. The photos sort of stand alone in this kind of weird, uh, what the book calls aesthetics of deindustrialization. What we have is a depiction of spaces that are empty of people. The land, in its sense, is sort of being portrayed as lying in waste. Uh, and even as the crisis is lamented in Flint and Detroit, they are marked as these spaces of waste that are then sort of available for a kind of reappropriation. The debt, deregulation, and development function as a mechanism for extracting value. So I wanted to think about the aspects of the legal infrastructure that have constructed this. And what's uh, quite interesting, of course, and not surprising, is that this all occurs through colorblind provisions that confer power and discretion. Meaning you can go to the laws that sort of set up this architecture and it mentions race nowhere. Right? What it does do is it sets, up, um, the, it sets up a process by which the application of regulations can rely upon and reinforce underlying racial presumptions. So the law in question is called the Local Financial Accountability and Choice Act. You always have to have choice, right? Um, and it allows for local governments to be examined for financial stress, I guess you sort of, and, and the, the list of things that can actually trigger this review is extraordinary. Uh, a six month overdue debt of over $10,000 for a municipality. Um, the legislature can trigger it. Um, there's all kinds of ways in which this review can be triggered. And once there's a determination of a financial emergency, um, what happens is there's a simultaneous sort of tightening of regulation. 
and control while there is a constraint of democratic oversight. So you, in fact, the removal of democratic oversight is equated with fiscal responsibility. Those, thi those things are not intention at all. That's exactly uh, what it's supposed to be. So what's interesting is that this law was put before, um, uh, was enacted previously and rejected by Michigan voters. They went to the polls and said, we don't want this law. But the governor uh, came in on a, pro on a project to sort of uh, install it anyway. So it was reenacted by the legislature and signed into law. Now, who are these emergency managers? Well, you'll be pleased to know that you can take a course in it. Uh, and it requires only five years of accounting experience or uh, some kind of management experience. You needn't be a resident of the place in which you become the emergency manager, um, but you can train for it and get a little certificate. So the provisions, which I won't go into at length here, except to sort of summarize, are quite stunning. But they say, essentially, um, upon the appointment by the governor, an emergency manager shall act for and in the place and stead of the governing body and the office of the chief administrative officer of local government. They shall have broad powers in receivership to rectify the financial emergency and assure the fiscal accountability of the local government, so on and so on. That gives them the power to modify and terminate contracts, gives them the power to consolidate and eliminate departments, it permits the sale of government assets, another mechanism of transfer of the public's fist to private hands. Uh, by the way, under this provision, Pontiac sold the Silver Dome, uh, which was the former home of the Detroit Lions for $583,000 in 2009. Uh, the investors who bought it now want to sell it for $30 million. Um, the emergency manager, what is its primary job? Well, going back to what I was arguing before, what you have is the objective is to secure debt collection. That's basically the job. Um, the financial plan that the manager is required to put in place calls for the payment in full of the scheduled debt service requirements on all bonds, notes, and municipal securities of local government, contract obligations, etc. So that's his primary job get the debt for the bondholders paid. Um, it operates, I won't go into uh, all of the uh, ways in which it sort of gives you choice. You have a choice between going into bankruptcy or getting a financial manager or some kind of neutral evaluation process, which is a kind of arbitration. But there are interesting financial incentives here. So the emergency manager doesn't just get paid by the state. There's also a provision that says in addition to the salary provided, um, the state may receive and distribute private funds to an emergency manager. Um, so that's kind of interesting. You have this entity that's placed on control over the city that is not just paid by state funds, but by private funds as well. And one example that I was able to find is that the emergency financial manager over the Detroit public school systems, a guy by the name of Robert Bob, for a time, not, didn't only just get money from the state, he got money from several foundations as part of his salary, including the Broad Foundation, which along with the Kellogg Foundation, paid him $145,000 a year on top of his $280,000 government salary. Now who is Broad? Uh, well, Broad is one of the leading foundations promoting school choice and privatization across the country, and indeed in Los Angeles, where I live, he is now uh, part of a organized effort to raise $500 million 
to enroll half of the students in LAUSD in charter schools over the next year. So this is a major plan to sort of shift um, the money out of public schools and into, I shouldn't say out of public schools, but shift into charter schools. The second thing is it's not just the collection of debt, it's the creation of debt. So uh, partly what's also going on here is a set of tax policies and re reform through the discourse of development, which actually starves local government of assets and taxes. So in a 2014 article uh, in one of the Detroit papers, I'll just read you this quick piece here. Michigan is home to a number of struggling cities, making it easy to point the finger at local officials, declining property tax revenues or other economic factors that have affected the nation as a whole. But many local leaders also point to Lansing, the capital. Over the past decade, lawmakers and governors from both political parties have used some $6.2 billion in sales tax collections to fill state budget holes rather than revenue sharing back to local government. Detroit, which filed for bankruptcy protection last year, missed out on $732 million between 2003 and 2013. Flint could have had an extra $4.9 million to work with, and cities like Pontiac and Lansing have lost more than $40 million. Um, it's uh, the Utica mayor, uh, Jacqueline Noonan, put it this way. It's like somebody stealing your wallet and then coming back hours later and saying, where's your money? Uh, one of the things that is also, I think, clear when we think about, or I shouldn't say clear, but I've been thinking about, is the way in which these spaces are sort of made available for reappropriation and marked as black spaces, is there's also a kind of black subject, black geographies and spaces as well as black subjectivities are vulnerable to similar patterns of debt creation and debt collection. So unemployment and underemployment ensure a certain kind of instability in labor markets, um, which the constant conditions of sort of precarity that push people, black people in particular, into quote unquote subprime status. Um, in an article that I think was published actually yesterday or the day before um, by Jennifer Taub in the New Labor Forum, she talks about the subprime, subprime specter actually moving out of the mortgage uh, industry and into uh, the auto industry uh, and into consumer debt. And so what you have is, is the same kind of securitization of the mortgage industry that led us down the rabbit hole of 2008 is now bubbling up again in the context of the securitization of these dicey and sketchy auto loans and uh, credit card loans. Um, and so one of the features uh, that I, I found particularly striking is the terms of the deal uh, for these auto loans frequently include things like marking up the rate in other words, the lender will quote a rate, but the dealer actually adds money on top of that. Um, you have, and there's incentive structures, these yield spread premiums, uh, which actually encourage them to do that. Um, there is a kind of racially discriminatory assessment of risk as who is actually sort of appropriate for these kinds of loans. And uh, one of the particular ones that I found striking is uh, something with reference to the credit card industry, which is something called fee harvesting. And in this circumstance, what you do is you um, take somebody who's got a subprime um, lender, and by the way, it turns out over 50% of people in the United States have subprime uh, credit scores. So feel united. <laughs> we have lots of company. Um, but there's also a way in which uh, this targets 
as I said, it, it's, not, it's not just sort of poverty that sort of predicts who is vulnerable to these predations. There's a racial dimension to it. So in fee harvesting, what happens is the company issues a card with a very low credit limit, like $250. Um, but it charges the borrower with very high upfront fees. So, and those fees get charged to the card right away. So it ends up that in certain cases, people have a card for which they have $72 or $75 worth of actual spendable credit. Um, now, why would this be the case? Why would uh, there be this kind of um, thirst for this kind of obviously shaky debt? Uh, it has to do with the rate of return. Um, and so partly, even though one might think that this would not uh, be sort of the investments that Wall Street would be seeking, it turns out that these are actually high on everybody's list. Um, so black economic positionality is not simply that of the vulnerable, but specifically a product of black subordination. The space is deemed to be waste, high risk, black, are those that are most profitable. Uh, Denise Ferreira da Silva and Paula Chakravarti argued persuasively in the American Quarterly several years ago that under the racial logic of global capitalism, quote, racial and cultural difference as an element of representation enters into risk calculation. And the subprime mortgage has become a racial signifier in the current debate about the causes and fixes for capitalism. The role of the market in mediating property and social relations, particularly race, and even more particularly in entrenching and protecting the value of whiteness is basically sustained. Um, the operation of unfettered markets has been both a liberal and conservative goal in American politics. And in thinking about the market, I am not simply referring to places or systems of exchange, which date back to prehistory, but rather to a particular period in which capitalist development has constituted markets global in scope and local in nature, predicated on liberal conceptions of property, and its foundation resting on raciality, the right reason of white supremacy, and the dispossession of land and persons brutally enacted. I want to close um, by returning to Detroit and a point of resistance. Um, Dominique Morisot, is the author of an award-winning trilogy of plays on Detroit, including the current Skeleton Crew, uh, which I have not seen but have heard marvelous things about, and I hope you all will. It's uh, about the life, uh, it's, it's lifting up basically the, the lives and heart of this experience, telling the story of four Detroit auto workers during the 2008 recession, where their plant is threatened with closure. So resistance in Detroit still lives, and it still insists on the connection to place and on to community and to history. And I close with a quote from the play because I just love this. This is delivered by Faye, the factory worker, about her relationship to the last operating plant. Quote, the walls talk to me. The dust on the floor writes me messages. I'm in the vents. I'm in the bulletin boards. I'm in the chipped paint. And ain't nobody can slip through the cracks past me up in here.
Thank you so much, Cheryl. Um, so we have some time for questions now, so please feel free to raise a hand and I'll rush to you with the microphone. Uh, hello. In your observations on the uh, incarceration and uh, production of valuable goods, is there also thinking about how many companies created by Wall Street are essentially running on uh, race-based labor? Uh, FedEx, Fresh Direct, uh, UPS, mm -hmm. and McDonald's. Mm -hmm. And has there been, these companies are created by Wall Street frames, they're not just private enterprise, really Wall Street creations. Mm -hmm. Would that be an important thing to attack also, to deal with that Wall Street production of race-based business? Oh yeah, I, I, I think there's just a lot to track, right? I mean, uh, there's, uh, this is really just a gesture towards thinking about some of these things, but there's an awful lot to track. And it's not just about the sort of racial stratification of a labor market, there's, I mean, that's, that's sort of what's visible. What, what there's also important to track is the movement of the capital and sort of how and in ways in which um, the objects are sort of being produced by this sort of uh, racial economic circuitry. That's, um, that's what I think is quite telling. I saw a hand back there. I did, right? Yeah, no? Um, I'm not exactly sure how to phrase this as a question, but maybe an observation. Um, thinking about debt and blackness um, and sort of how, um, how the language of debt has created these ideas and then thinking about reparations and affirmative action and how those, the rhetoric around that is, mm -hmm. is round up in debt. And I guess I'm sort of am interested in that mm -hmm. go-between and I'm wondering if you could speak mm -hmm. more about it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm so glad you raised that because uh, this question of debt has really haunted the entire discourse for a very long time. So if we think about emancipation being controversial because slaveholders insisted that a debt would be owed them for taking away their property. Um, and then the flip side of that is, of course, the demand of formerly enslaved Africans for payment of the debt due them for labor you have this sort of debt being the mediating language for both claims of appropriation and claims of reparation. Um, and so there's nothing sort of inherent about the concept that sort of makes it track any particular valence. It has been invested with these particular political meanings. What i am in, been interested in, and I'm, I'm, as I said, I'm very glad that you, that you raised it, is the way in which this notion of slave owners as be, having a right to extract uh, payment for debt is is still <laughs> still around. I, I mean, it, it, I, I know that that might seem uh, overstatement, but the notion that these um, sort of networks of capital can claim as a moral matter that a debt is due them um, for what I just went through, debt that they created um, is now asserted as a basis for collection. And through that process, the transfer of the public fisc to private hands. Um, that's seen as a legitimate kind of debt collection uh, situation. 
Um, so, yeah, but the demand for reparations and this notion of debt always is coming up against that resistance, like who owes who what? Yeah, I think we know, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that gentleman in the back right there. I think, so it's kind of, we're at this weird time where in the popular imagination there's still this, um, this image of Detroit as being like a deindustrialized de wasteland. I'm from Detroit, so I, I'm delighted to hear about you speak about it. Um, like when I tell people I'm from there, like, oh my God, how horrible is it? And yeah. in Bushwick, Brooklyn, there's all these billboards like recruiting people who are priced out of Brooklyn to move to Detroit because it's the land of opportunity. You can buy a house, you can be rich. Uh, wow. And like, how do you kind of think of this, like the simultaneous uh, rebranding of this area where there's still people there, but it's still vacant, but um, I mean, you can afford to live like a king there if you have the money, but the people who are there can't. I don't even know if that makes sense, but I'm just. <laughs> no, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. I think that um, partly, like I say, in addition to the fact that it's just been in the news, is just thinking about, I'm from the Midwest originally, I'm from Chicago, so it's right up the road. Um, why these spaces, in fact, are sort of become the, I guess I would say, the most vulnerable for these kinds of um, predations. Uh, really has to do with their durability as black spaces. Uh, and um, the, uh, again, I want to make it clear that I'm not saying that it's only black space that is subject to certain forms of this, but what I am trying to say is that there is a particular reason why it's Flint and Detroit. Um, and even though this emergency management law that's lurking out there in Michigan is subject to attack a lot of poor, sort of economically deprived white towns. Um, the discretion that's built into the infrastructure allows for officials to decide when and that hammer comes down. Do you see what I'm saying? So, and that's where the racial presumptions come in, in terms of who is sort of competent to work their way out of a problem and who needs tutelage. So I am I'm struck by and heartbroken by kind of the conundrum of the racial stoop or what you described as, as the racial stoop. Um, I'm curious um, as to what you think about the relationship is between kind of perceived black upward mobility and how that's often accompanied by the necessity to um, incur considerable amounts of debt. Um, I think about education and the black body relationship mm -hmm. to debt. Mm -hmm. Right. So it, it has to do with the troubled relationship between blackness and property. Um, and so having been sort of constituted as property, access to property um, in, of a material kind has always remained fraught uh, and those rights are always unstable, right? Um, so ownership rights um, in, the, in the traditional sort of liberal property regime depend upon certain kind of subjectivities. And partly because we have not occupied that trustworthiness, reliability, all of those cultural traits, our relationship to property is always fraught. With respect to this sort of class um, mobility issue, um, you know, this is what the 
um, economists and sociologists have been telling us for a long time, which is that the infrastructure upon which the black middle class status is built is far different from that of the white middle class. Uh, and a good deal of it is built on debt. And the jokes, you know, that um, used to be told across the kitchen table about being three, three paychecks away from bankruptcy is part of what my father used to call the black tax. Uh, <clears throat> and so I say all that to say that um, the, uh, I, I don't think that's unique, again, because, again, this sort of way in which the contradictions around lower wages, higher prices has been resolved is through debt. That, that's, I think, more broadly true. But I think that the precarity of sort of black subjectivity means that um, the debt has this other dimension. And it goes back, actually, to the question that was asked earlier. Um, you know, our relationship to debt is both as sort of uh, debt or, and we aspire to um, making claims for debts that are own us, but those are, for the most part, occluded, really. So that's, I don't know if that responds to your question exactly, but, yeah. Hi. You Hi. mentioned uh, car loans, and you mentioned uh, credit card or consumer loans. What about student loans? Yeah. Those are, <laughs> those are wicked. And uh, here's the thing, you know, so I teach at a public law school. Um, the, I believe probably, I may, I may have this wrong, but probably about 25 years ago, the cost of paying for tuition was under $15,000 year, something like that. Um, now the cost of a law degree is somewhere north of $180,000. Okay. And, you know, I mean, you don't, we don't have to get out the little violins and cry for the lawyers, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that. But the, um, <laughs> no, I'm not saying that. But I am trying to say in terms of the students that come to our project wanting to do social justice work, saddled with that kind of debt, what, or looking at the prospects of that kind of debt, what is it doing? It's taking out whole generations of people that actually have aspirations to do a different kind of work. Um, and so there's all these kinds of effects of the ways in which um, education is now being funded. The other thing I would mention is the, pr the, the sort of subprime end of the education loan market, which we see all the time. So again, in California, and I'm, I'm sure the case is true here, uh, community colleges are absolutely jam-packed. You can, you can barely get a class. You can't, you, you can't it, it, it takes years to actually get an Associate of Arts degree in some of the schools because there's just simply no places in the classes. And so what has that meant? Well, that's meant that there's a whole generation of young people that are coming out that cannot get into a four-year college because they either don't have the background or the money or whatever. Um, and they can't get into community colleges either, or at least they can barely get into them, and they certainly have a very difficult time accumulating credits. 
And so what has that made them vulnerable to? That's made them vulnerable to the for-profit colleges and programs and universities. So there's a young man in, in our neighborhood at one of our favorite little neighborhood spots whose father owns the restaurant. And his father proudly told us a couple years ago that his son was in school. And I thought, great. Where was his son in school? His son was in school at some training program that was charging them $35,000 for some kind of certificate for 18 months, non-transferable credits, right? So what I'm trying to say is there's a sort of subprime end of the education loan market, much as there's the other end, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough out here. Yeah. Yes? When you spoke about de-harvesting, and, and then through the rest of your talk, I thought about um, how that's also happening with people who can't pay for um, tickets or summons, right? And how that ends up filling all of the, these mm -hmm. um, municipal budgets and police budgets mm -hmm. is just, um, I, w I don't know, I wanted to know if you could talk about that. You know, that I, I think that's the direct inheritance of what um, Cameron alluded to in his work and what we talked about the, the ways in which the convict leasing system enacted itself was you first declared that the person was in debt to you. And then when you couldn't pay it, um, that subjected you to incarceration. We have another version of that, the Department of Justice tells us in Ferguson, right, uh, in which you get stopped for a ticket, you can't pay, the fees ratchet up. Um, and by the way, uh, despite the fact that, you know, we ostensibly don't have debtor's prison, that's exactly what this is. Um, the courts have repeatedly rejected Eighth Amendment uh, challenges to this um, on the grounds that somehow this isn't a violation of that notion, but it's, it's, it's patently false. Uh, and it also, I think, again, rests upon this notion of the kind of uh, pay to stay, right? So now, in addition to being incarcerated, you get to pay for the privilege. Um, and um, all of this is justified by this notion of neoliberal, the neoliberal state, right? The state can no longer even afford to incarcerate you, so you have to pay for your own incarceration. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yes. Hi. Hi. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't take that one off the table. Uh, I, I'm going to take the spirit of your question as this. Since that task is so mammoth, where might one begin? Would that be a fair? Yeah, okay. Um, I think, I think a lot about um, the fact that one of the things that we have is that hegemony is never perfect. Uh, if it were perfect, we wouldn't be here. And so that doesn't necessarily open up a clear path, but it does open up the notion 
as I see, we, I think we've witnessed over the last two years, that even at the height of a sort of regime of colorblindness, at the moment where there was absolute liberal and conservative consensus that this is how we should proceed, we have the eruption of a uh, movement from below that's actually saying no, no to that. Uh, I don't want to romanticize that. I'm old enough now that I've seen a lot of ebbs and flows. But what I will say is that um, it speaks to the fact of what I was trying to get to uh, in this notion, which is one, one of the things we can do is absolutely map the reality in which we are in to, to basically allow us to find those spaces and contradictions in places where we can make moves. Um, some of that has to do with um, developing networks that uh, are, are basically um, not always dependent upon a certain kind of institutional structure. Um, and some of that is work that I think cannot be sort of predicted, right? A, a lot of it has to do with being really opportunistic in, in a different kind of way. Um, and uh, um, improvisational, if you will. Um, and again, I don't want to um, negate the importance of organization because I don't think these things just sort of burst forth, you know, like just kind of happened. They happened because there was a lot of very serious organizing that had gone on before. Um, they happened because there were threads and connections uh, to struggles that had happened previously. And what's important is to kind of try to keep that um, that thread, that connectivity going. Specifically, I think one of the things that um, we have tried to do in the context of the critical race theory program is to um, help in our dialogue and discourse develop a language for describing what we are. One of the things that I think colorblindness did a very good job on is erasing the capacity to even understand and speak about race. Uh, and that, was, that transcended the race of the speaker. I'm saying that black people were suffering from this, uh, white people, Latino people, Asian people, all, everyone sort of disabled in a certain way by colorblindness from speaking to a certain kind of reality. And so part of what I think um, is important is that the ability to sort of tap into a black radical imagination requires the resuscitation of that tradition and a certain degree of shaping that language for our contemporary 21st century moment. So that didn't give you any answer at all, really. <laughs> but uh, I, I want to thank you for actually surfacing the question because I think it's fundamentally the one that we struggle with all the time. So um, I have two questions. Okay. Um, the first one is uh, kind of a follow-up to her question. Um, so thinking about property and race uh, makes me think of the Weeksville community here in Bed-Stuy. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. No. Um, so it's in Bed-Stuy, it's wonderful. There's a heritage center over there as well. But um, essentially at the time where this is even before this, um, 1865, but black, there, um, there were free black slaves in New York City. Um, and part of, uh, not to go over this too long, but black suffrage or, or a black man's right to vote was um, 
predicated on their ability to own property. So a black man could only vote if they own property. So mm -hmm. James, we created this community in Weeksville um, where they bought all this property uh, for the community and rented it out to other free black slaves or ex-slaves. Um, um, and this sort of idea of community uh, activism or community organizing or mobilization um, is very interesting to me in terms of uh, our current problem today with Detroit or anything like that. And I was curious to see if you had any thoughts about that in terms of, um, in terms of this idea of a solution or whatever, um, in terms of community and uh, organizing between people. Uh, and the second question was, uh, it's very simple, what year was the Lechner case, or Lechner? Lochner. Lochner, sorry. Um, so I believe it's 1906. Let me just double check. I should know. I, I hammer on it all the time. Um, with regard to the first question, so I take your question to be about sort of different kinds of models of sort of negotiating the relationship to property and this being a historical example of sort of a banding together of a certain kind of uh, resources to acquire property. Yeah, I, 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 um, there is no sort of outside the capitalist system. <laughs> There, there, there is no outside. Um, and the negotiations that I think black people have historically dealt with have included things like banding together to buy themselves out of slavery, banding together to buy property, banding together to try to negotiate within the spaces that they can find um, some way of um, sustaining their humanity and their life. I think though that we do have some very interesting possibilities and models that we can think of that extend and that actually call on us to think about different models of ownership and living. And I, and I don't know that, you know, what they are, I don't know what how they look, but I am saying that I think precisely because we are situated where we are, um, that it's, it's time to think about some of those. Um, there have often been, like I said, there's a long history of efforts to form black communes, black communal life. There's a, a, a lot of that. But I, and I don't, I, again, I don't want to uh, romanticize those. Many of those crashed and burned. Many of them had uh, very difficult histories. But um, I do think that part of our, I guess, collective responsibility is to recognize that our, that, again, that there is no sort of exit from this, particularly on our own. Uh, and what that might call on us to do is um, think about different models and ways of sort of accessing and managing um, questions of property, yeah, in both the literal and sort of figurative sense. I didn't talk about this because I'd already talked too long, but you know, on the other side, of um, thinking about Native Americans and dispossession of land, we also have now the ways in which their actual DNA has become property that is subject to appropriation. So <laughs> I, I mentioned that just to say about the quotidian nature, really, of how property functions racially 
uh, in many, many ways. So it, it poses a lot of challenge. Uh, yes, so um, uh, Kim Tallbear is a um, Native American scholar that's written a lot about this. In fact, she has a book called, I think it's called Native DNA. Uh, and basically what it is is that the biologist and the molecular biologist and geneticists that have mapped the genome pool are very, always very interested in populations that have, for different historical reasons, been unique, right? Um, because they want to study it. Um, and there have been a number of legal controversies in which um, the biological samples and the DNA from those samples was taken by researchers without sort of clear understandings of what that was going to be. And the justification seems to be something along the lines of, well, this is actually uh, good for you, <laughs> and it's good for us. Uh, more broadly because it's going to help us understand X, Y, and Z, and so forth. But I can give you the, um, the name later to the book. It's a, it's a fascinating and um, very problematic story. Has resonances, of course, with Henrietta Lacks and, and others. It's Hello. Hi. Good evening. Good um, evening. One of your questions, one of your points um, and I've heard this in the news also lately, was about corporations becoming considered in court as individual people. Um, and my response to that, especially in the context of reparations, um, is in a very perverse way of thinking, I think in a very odd and outlandish question to you, is could black people become a corporation, therefore, um, instead of considered as a lot of individuals? Um, in Cameron's show, um, there was a kind of chart, a small chart in the corner that showed the stock for this particular um, corporation. Mm -hmm. And when I think about what black people contributed, um, as slaves, uh, even after it was emancipated through market growth and inflation and so on, that could be worth, that is worth a lot of money. And um, would it be possible, in a very metaphorical answer and question to you, is um, can black people become incorporated and be owed our debt? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I would say that uh, anyone can incorporate. Um, and I think the question kind of is, what does the corporate form provide? Um, so we'd probably have to drill down on that question. Um, what does it provide that being an individual doesn't? Um, and uh, importantly, I think partly your suggestion is what kinds of claims or arguments might it allow one to make? Um, there isn't anything magical about that, and I didn't take your suggestion to be that it was. But um, I'd have to think more about it. Um, and partly, you know, this is, this is really outside my expertise, corporate law. 
But um, the point that I guess I was trying to get to is that the personhood of the corporation as a 14th Amendment entity is imbued with a kind of racial identity. And um, whether or not that is malleable, whether or not that is capacious enough, uh, what, what are the effects or sort of consequences of taking on um, that question? I don't know, but I'll, I'm going to chew on it. Yeah? Hi. Um, Hi. Thanks for your talk. Really appreciate it. Um, I guess two related questions, but like answer in whatever order, whichever one you like. Um, would you consider uh, prisoners, incarcerated people now slaves? And if so, would you consider yourself a prison abolitionist? I consider myself a prison abolitionist. I do not consider current prisoners slaves. I do consider them to be subject to certain attributes of enslavement. And that's the fine line, but the reason that I draw it is because I want to try to honor some historical facts. But I do think that the circuits of appropriation and um, exploitation are very deeply related to slavery. So I might be more comfortable with calling it neo-slavery. Is it time for a beer yet? <laughs> I think it definitely is. Thank you, Sarah.